The Interchange is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading pure play solar inverter supplier with a range of solutions for both solar and storage applications. SunGrow is powering the largest solar project in Washington State, as well as Rhode Island and Wyoming. With more than 2 gigawatts of inverters shipped to the Americas, find out how SunGrow is investing in U.S. solar at www.sungrowpower.com. The Interchange is also brought to you by Wonder Capital, the leading solar investment platform. Wonder gets your commercial solar projects done fast. And if you're an investor, Wonder gets your money to projects and helps you earn up to 7.5% annually. If you want your project financed or you want to invest, you can sign up at wondercapital.com gtm. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, GTM's editor in chief. Welcome. This week, we're road tripping across Europe. In Poland's cold country, diplomats are breathing in smog filled air, preparing to strengthen a global climate deal. In France, angry protesters are rioting in the streets over a gas tax as part of the president's climate policy. And in the UK, Britons may leave the European Union without a deal in place threatening the health of energy markets and the economics of renewable power plants. So as we close out the year, what better time to take a tour of the top European stories? During our tour, if we have time, maybe we'll scope out a few subsidy-free offshore wind farms and battery manufacturing plants along the way. Shail Khan is with me in the passenger seat, map in hand. How are you, sir? I'm good, Stephen. How are you? Good. Shale's the senior VP of research and strategy at the VC firm Energy Impact Partners. He's over on the West Coast in the Bay Area. And joining us this week from Barcelona, Spain, is Jason Dane, GTM's prolific contributing writer who reports on a range of international energy topics for us. Hey, Jason. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So we Americans are so focused on the craziness here within our own country. We can sometimes lose sight of the nuttiness elsewhere, like, oh, all around Europe. What feels more precarious to you, Jason, the, the U.S. or Europe? <laughs> uh, right now, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a toss, isn't it? Um, I, 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 th- I think I'd still stick with Europe, but uh, it's always been a bit crazy here. Of course, uh, the U.S., after all, is one country, and we've got a whole bunch of them here to, to deal with. So there's always lots of fun going on. But I think at the moment... Um, as you just mentioned in your intro, there's um, plenty to interest everyone uh, happening uh, across the uh, across the continent at the moment. Yeah, it depends on how you look at it here. You could say we're one country where we have 50 countries. Um, Shale, how much are you tuned to the European stories, particularly the political ones I mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of a political junkie, so I'm tuned to those just in my independent interest in understanding what's going on in the world. I I haven't been admittedly as in tune to their impact on the world of energy as I probably should have been. So I'm looking forward to learning from Jason a little bit more about the tie there. But I mean, you know, stepping back from the energy component, it is it's wild what's happening right now. And, you know, I'd I'd say one thing from the American context, just if you're kind of reading the, the news from here, is that I think you'll see the news flares up when there's some big set of protests. Maybe it happened in Greece a couple of years ago, and maybe it's happening in France right now. And it shows up in the news in the US, I think, for a few days typically, and then kind of disappears. And I think the the result is that Americans, even those who are relatively tuned into what's going on in global politics, um, miss out on what happens afterwards. 
because we just see little flare-ups of news cycles. We don't stay with it. I would say even the same thing for Brexit. There have been a bunch of individual flare-ups, but nobody's really tracking it on an ongoing basis. And at least I'll speak for myself. That means that the information that I've got is only at the moments when things are the most charged, which I feel like actually does a disservice to what's happening on an ongoing basis in a lot of these countries. But I'm hoping that Jason can provide that needed context because he is our guy out there in Europe who's paying attention to a lot of these stories. So I want to start the show with a few of the top political stories that are directly in the news, namely the climate talks, French protests, and Brexit. And then uh, if we have time, I want to quickly discuss a couple really important market stories like the European battery boom and the next stage of maturity for offshore wind because there are a lot of really interesting, neat things happening in Europe in terms of investments in those industries. Uh, So let's first turn to Katowice, Poland, where delegations from all over the world are convening in European coal country, forcing the Europeans to stand face to face with their own coal problem. Because of that setting, it has kind of thrust coal into the narrative around the climate talks even more than usual. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how it's playing out there, Jason, given uh, Poland's reliance on coal and the Europeans trying to continually boost their climate targets. How, how's that storyline playing out? Well, I think, uh, I think the way to sum this up is, you know, if you look at what's happened in recent months, we've seen a whole load of reports coming out um, from various organizations claiming that the climate crisis is a lot more serious than we thought. And then you have these critical climate talks taking place, um, not just in Poland, which is, uh, you know, one of the biggest coal consuming countries in Europe, but also, uh, we found out more recently it's being sponsored by, uh, corporations like JWS, which is Europe's biggest producer of coking coal, others like PGE and Toron, which are also coal uh, related uh, organizations. And, you know, it's, it's almost like a bit of a sick joke. You know, how far can you, how far can you go to, to rub people's, uh, noses in, in this, in this, in this whole thing? So, um, I think on, you know, with that backdrop, it's going to be interesting to see if anything useful can actually come out of these, uh, these talks that are happening this week. Um, Let's not forget, Poland gets around 80% of its electricity from coal right now. And uh, yeah, sure, it's hoping to reduce that, but uh, you know, it's still expecting to get around 60% of its electricity from coal by 2030. So it's not exactly in line with the kind of goals that everybody else is telling us that we should be aiming for right now to, um, to cut that uh, carbon emissions. You know, one thing I've wondered about the past couple of years is that as the U.S. has gone through this transformation in terms of global climate policy and announced the intent to um, exit the Paris Climate Accords and, you know, generally from a federal administration standpoint, taken a a pretty combative stance toward um, the rest of the world on these issues. I think the U.S., unless I'm wrong, I think the U.S. still sends a delegation to these meetings. Presumably, we still have a delegation in Poland this week, what are those people doing and are they having productive talks of any sort or are they just there to be there? Yeah, Shia, we are sending a delegation. Um, but what has happened is that the State Department has been slowly, or I guess quickly, dismantled from the inside. And it makes it harder for uh, people within the State Department who are working on climate issues to do their job. So we do have people actually there representing the United States. But what we've seen are folks from the State Department leave their government positions and go to work for NGOs and form kind of a shadow diplomacy network 
at these uh, COP events and at other similar events. And these are folks who have deep experience in government who are actually working with uh, diplomats and other people who represent countries so that the United States can have this kind of shadow presence beyond the official Trump administration delegation. So I'm particularly interested in the way that I framed this discussion at the beginning. The talks are taking place in Poland, which is heavily reliant on coal. Um, The Europeans are are in desperate need to start moving away from coal. And then it makes this uncomfortable situation where you have officials from Germany saying, well, we're not ready to talk about official targets to ban coal yet. And there are other European leaders who feel the same way. And that's because Germany is, you know, very still very reliant on coal, um, even though it's scaled up a lot of renewable energy. And so when you have a meeting taking place inside large buildings that are powered by coal, you can't have a situation that illustrates the the difficulties of this transition any more than that. And so I'm interested in how the politics of this are playing out in Europe, Jason. Um, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, clearly, it's been commented on a lot that, that you know this is uh, it is a slightly ironic kind of uh, position to to have. And I think more than Poland itself being the host, the the issue has been with the sponsors. Um, I think more widely, it's worth pointing out that um, coal across Europe is is very much on the wane. Um, most of the debate around maintaining coal production is around jobs rather than energy per se. Uh, you know, Europe itself is moving towards um, a future which is much more dominated by gas, and and there's a whole bunch of you know kind of geopolitical issues possibly around around that. Um, but coal, essentially, in, you know, we've seen uh, just this year, actually, in, in the UK, uh, you know, perhaps the, one of the countries that started digging coal out first of all, uh, finally moving away from coal to the extent that it's actually had days when there's been no coal generation whatsoever. Uh, even Germany, for all the uh, headlines it, it, it gets about sort of lignite burning and so on, I think it accounts for less than 5% of, of total coal, um, you know, kind of uh, consumption worldwide. So, None of the European countries we're talking about here are significant in terms of coal on a uh, a global scale. Clearly, there are places like Germany and like Poland where this is still very much a live debate. But actually, as I said earlier, the the big issue here is is what's going to happen with the major the countries that that do consume massive amounts of coal, and and there we're talking about countries like uh, you know China. Of course, the U.S. and even places like India. So it's it's really down to those major consumption centers to try and make a, a difference. Uh, what's happening in in Europe is a debate that kind of perhaps shows the way because mostly the debate is around how do we phase this out and what goes in its place, and also how do we deal with the coal industry, which of course is a, a major source of employment in some of these countries. The Interchange is brought to you by SunGrow. With more than 68 gigawatts of inverters deployed across the globe, SunGrow is now growing rapidly in the U.S. SunGrow is part of Washington State's largest solar facility that was just completed in November. The project is a 28-megawatt array that is 25 times larger than the next biggest solar array in the state. 
It isn't just unique for its size. As part of Avista Utilities' Solar Select program, the power is going to go to more than 60 CNI customers. And beyond the off-takers, it's also unique in that the landowner said he'd use most of the proceeds to go toward a local college and trade school fund for kids in the town. SunGrow is committed to supporting novel solar projects across the U.S. SunGrow has proven bankability, a dedicated 24-7 service center in Phoenix, and unique solutions across central and string inverters. Find out what else SunGrow is working on at www.sungrowpower.com. And then find out how you can invest in solar with Wonder Capital. Wonder Capital can help you, the commercial solar project developer or the investor, secure financing for your project or become a financier of a project. And if you're adding storage too, Wonder can help. Find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next commercial solar project at wondercapital.com slash financing. That's Wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash financing. Okay, over to France. France is dealing with its own uncomfortable situation, to put it lightly, after policy proposals met reality. Hundreds of protesters... Hundreds of thousands of protesters have taken to the streets over the last week to rail against Macron's gas tax, and it appears to have morphed into a bigger protest against the rising cost of living in France. Uh, in Paris, over the weekend, cars were burned out, hundreds were arrested, tear gas and water cannons were deployed. This all comes at a time when diplomats are debating how much to tax polluting sources at the climate talks there in Poland. So, it's, a, it's another kind of awkward situation. It shows how difficult it can be to implement these policies in practice when wrapped up in all the other concerns of citizens, even in a climate progressive country like France. Jason, how much are these protests about energy? You know, as far as I can tell, this seems to be a movement which started off very much with a uh, an energy focus and has actually now been uh, spread into a sort of a wider protest about living standards in general. Um, I mean, I think anyone who lives in Europe uh, will tell you that the, front, the French ha- have a penchant, they tease a bit of French there, for going on demonstrations, because whenever you seem to uh, find a, an airline strike, uh, whatever, it tends to be the uh, the French air traffic controllers who are causing problems with your flights. But um, this does seem to be a bit more serious. Uh, from what I gather, there have been around four deaths so far, hundreds of cars burnt out, the Arc de Triomphe has been vandalized. The New York Times called it some of the worst civil unrest in more than a decade. So things are getting out of hand. Um, and it does seem that it's uh, probably a bit more than people concerned about the uh, high prices of, of gas. Um, ostensibly, uh, where it started, though, was uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, there was uh there've been there've been increases in tax on on particularly on diesel and a lot of french people d- drive diesel cars in europe this has been encouraged until uh, recently the dieselgate scandal n- revealed that the the problems with the, with the fuel um so in france there's been a, an attempt to sort of try and level the amount of taxation on diesel uh to to make it more or less the same as as traditional gas uh, unleaded um, and that's gone down very badly with uh, sectors of the population who are already having problem, problems uh, making ends meet. Uh, if you go to a place like Paris, it's incredibly expensive there. So people are being driven out uh, into the periphery and out into the country. And of course, then you have to travel more. Uh, and if you're seeing these these uh, prices going up, then then that's a challenge. A lot of the uh, actual increase in, in gas prices in France are down to 
uh, macroeconomic um, uh, problems, essentially just the increase in 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 the in the crude. Uh, so th- it's only really a smaller part of that uh, increase that's down to this taxation, uh, and it does look like uh, you know a lot of other people have joined the bandwagon. Uh, there are there are kind of you know various forces at work behind the scenes, uh, as we've seen elsewhere in, in, in other countries that you know will jump on any kind of demonstration and and, and try and cause havoc. And, and we're seeing quite a lot of that happening in in uh, in France right now. I wonder also whether just from reading about the protests there and the source of why there's so you know there the gas prices are already pretty high and diesel prices are already pretty high in France and they already have fairly high taxes on both of them. So this is adding to that. Um, but it seems like one of the sources of um, why there's such a major reaction to this is is a similar political dynamic that we've seen in the US and I think in um, Britain as well recently, which is this urban-rural divide where it, in just understanding um, transportation patterns in France, you know, if you live in Paris, this increase in the petrol tax may not have such a big impact on you. But if you're living in a rural location, and particularly if you're living in an exurb and have to commute into the city, um, then it might. And so I think it's possible that doing this is just sort of inflaming what was already a, a boiling political divide. And this just became the flashpoint for it. But I do think it raises some interesting questions about, as, as you said, Stephen, Macron uh, couches this um, under climate policy, right? He, he says that the reason to increase the gas tax is, is to meet France's climate goals. Um, and, and that doesn't seem to be a sufficient reason to get people to get on board with it, at least at the moment. I wonder whether it would be different if instead of it just being a gas tax, if he were imposing a countrywide carbon tax or some other you know, major climate legislation, as opposed to just singling out um, a particular area of the economy that that has these other flashpoints associated with it. You know, it, it, I don't know if it would have made any difference if it had been a more general tax, perhaps so. Um, certainly there's a, a group of people that feel quite aggrieved, but I believe it's quite a diverse group. And and I, as I said before, I think, you know, what started out as a protest against fuel hikes is now increasingly turning into a general protest about, you know, economic policy. Um, so I, I think at this point, it's actually quite difficult to, Separate out the, uh, the elements of this, which are, you know, directly, uh, attributed to or attributable to, uh, the, the energy policy of the country, uh, and, and those which are, um, you know, kind of more generic and perhaps more structural in nature. Um, I think this just as a sort of a footnote, I would say it's, it's quite ironic because, uh, I've read today that, uh, as a result of these problems, uh, the prime minister of France is not going to be traveling to the climate change talks in Poland. So uh, ironically, a, a move that was initially aimed at improving climate change is, is stopping France from actually having a greater presence at those talks. <laughs> now, speaking of a political calamity, let's turn to Brexit. Um, prime Minister Theresa May now needs to convince British lawmakers that the plan her government negotiated is the correct plan. On December 11th, Parliament will vote on it, and it's uh, not looking good, at least from what I can tell. Many are preparing for a no-deal pullout from the EU, which would create all kinds of problems with trade deals, immigration, and you know all kinds of business agreements. So I guess let's just start with 
what we're expecting before December 11th. Why does it look like Parliament might reject Theresa May's deal? Yeah, so for those who haven't been following this story too closely, um, more than two years ago, the UK voted to leave the European Union. And since then, the government's been trying to work out the best way to do it. Um, now, at the time uh, when, the, when there was a referendum on this, the Leave campaign implied that the UK would more or less be able to have its cake and eat it once it left. Um, but obviously, it doesn't make sense for the EU just to allow that to happen because, in other, if that if that were the case, then you know why would anybody want to be part of the uh, the European Club? So uh, there was obviously going to be some tough negotiating around this. But uh, what we've seen over the last couple of years is that May's government has done such a bad job of of things that sometimes you've even had the impression that the Europeans have been sorry for her. Um, what's happened in the last uh, couple of weeks is that she's finally come out with what appears to be the only deal that Europe was settled for. Um, and it's not going down well in Westminster um, because if you look at it, it's, it's pretty much worse than, uh, than anything else and it's worse than staying uh, in Europe in the first place. So nobody's really happy with it. It looks like the package won't get through Parliament this week. Um, but if that doesn't happen... Then we're really into uncharted territory. We've only got four months to go before Brexit is supposed to happen. And uh, I don't think that leaves enough time really for there to be, you know, any negotiation around a new deal uh, or even, you know, some other kind of uh, other options are things like, uh, you know, having a, a motion of no confidence, bringing in a new government. It's just not enough time. So what we're going to see, well, nobody really knows. This has never happened before in history. Um so far, Westminster's already told energy companies that, uh, you know, the UK uh, renewable energy guarantees of origin may not be recognized by the EU. They'll certainly be under no obligation to recognize them in a, in a no deal scenario. Um, the UK, for its part, has, uh, has said that it, it will recognize certificates of origin from energy coming from, from Europe. So the energy imports should be fine. But the question is, Will Europe continue to honor, you know, certificates of origin from, uh, from the UK? So basically, we don't know what's going to happen. And it's going to be interesting to see how this one plays out. Um, if I was, uh, right now a, a UK based, uh, energy, renewable energy provider selling into Europe, I think I'd be pretty worried. So for those who are not steeped in European energy markets, can you explain what a certificate of origin is and why it matters if you're a renewable energy generator in, in, Britain. So basically, the, the the certificate of origin or guarantee of origin, it's it's a tracking instrument that's been defined in in the European directives, and, and it essentially labels electricity from from renewable sources, so that if you're a customer, you know you are getting renewable electricity. Um, the, the, I guess the impact is uh, right now. Clearly, you know you have people on both sides of the channel producing renewable energy, and they're selling them across you know across the borders. Um, the question is, will that sale still be able to happen uh, after Brexit? And and the challenge here for European, sorry, not for European, but for UK uh, producers is that, you know, the UK is an island. It's got a limited grid. It's also got a large amount of renewable energy, um, particularly in things like offshore wind. Um, so there are times when it's producing probably more than it needs and um, at the moment, there's no certainty over what can happen to that surplus once there's this disconnection. One assumes and one hopes that there will be some fudge and some workaround 
and things will just pretty much carry on as normal. But right now, there's no guarantee that that's going to be the case. And I think that's what the concern would be if you are a renewable energy uh, producer or indeed an investor in the UK at the moment. I tend to be colored by the things I'm consuming at the moment. And so right now I'm listening to this podcast about the hype around Y2K. And I'm sure you both remember that very clearly. Um, it, it just reminds me of like the amount of hype that we saw from software providers and government officials and basically the intellectual elite about how computer systems were going to crash in the year 2000 because they were unequipped to handle with the the double zero. The computer systems wouldn't know what year it was and everything turned out to be fine. Um, is that is there potential for that? So um I think I think you're you're right for for the certainly for energy markets uh you know it's not like you know come midnight on on the day of the disconnection they're going to pull the plugs on both sides of the channel the electrons are going to stop and and you know that's not going to happen but it can um, I, feel like that the way that some people report on it. You know, there's this like this this end of times way of describing it that I, I think we need to put into context. Yeah. So I think uh, the issue here with Brexit is is not really around the energy markets because they are working and I suspect they will continue to work as they have until now. Um, as I say, there will probably be some kind of technical workaround to make sure the accounting side is done all right. But I think, you know, the interconnectors are in place uh, that's pretty automated and it, and it, you know, pretty much happens by itself. And that's not going to stop. I think the main challenge for Brexit is, you know, what's going to happen with things like fresh food at the ports. And, and those are much bigger deals for the UK. You know, right now there's, there's talk about, you know, how we're going to make sure that, uh, things like blood plasma and, and, and critical medicines are, 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 you know, available. Those are the big issues. The energy markets, the electricity markets, yeah, that's going to, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how that's resolved, but I don't think they're going to be big in terms of their impact on the country. And I suspect that's probably why we haven't had much discussion about this so far, because frankly, the government in the UK, if there is a no deal scenario, it's got much bigger fish to fry right now. Um, the other thing I would say, which is interesting, is that uh, one place which is unlikely to be affected in, in any great measure by uh, one energy market, I should say, that's unlikely to be affected by by this, is actually the Irish, uh, uh, Irish and, and Northern Irish grid because those are already interconnected, and 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 you know that is already working. So in a sense, it provides a model of what could happen, uh, you know, after after Brexit. But we'll wait to see. As I say, it's going to be um, very interesting because this is very uncharted territory. Let me try to put this in business terms. To contextualize it. So, Shale, I'll ask you, if you were evaluating a startup, a company with significant amounts of contracts or tie-ups in the UK, and they could be potentially affected by Brexit, or it was uncertain how they were going to be affected by, affected by Brexit, what would you be thinking as a VC? Well, I guess on the one hand, the, the positive side of this would be that we're more accustomed to regulatory risk, I think, in this sector than in most others, um, or political risk for that matter. But, you know, you it, if you're valuing a company based on existing contracts or cash flows from those contracts, and there's a significant relatively near-term risk that's somewhat binary, either 
it goes the right way and everything is fine or it goes the wrong way and everything falls apart, that would be a pretty big red flag. You know, depending on the type of financing that you're trying to raise, you maybe some folks could underwrite to that and other folks couldn't. But if you do have this kind of uncertainty looming over projects, particularly over operational projects, which are supposed to be de-risked at this point, and that's kind of the whole value proposition of a renewable energy project is stable cash flows, not very risky, you know, production is pretty well known, that throws the whole thing out of whack if there's this big question mark underlying it. In the same way that, you know, when countries like Spain went back and tried to retroactively change feed-in tariffs on operating projects, that had a big reverberating impact through the market for for any feed-in tariff projects in Europe um, because it's just a it's a big risk to a thing that's supposed to not be risky. So though I think we're more comfortable with it than most, it's still a pretty big deal and would certainly affect the ability to raise capital for new projects. And just one last word, uh, this has caused a number of strange moments, awkward moments, like when uh, the British appliance maker Dyson said it would build a, a giant battery factory and electric vehicle factory in Singapore, not the UK. The company is actually benefiting from a free trade agreement. Uh, Dyson's founder and chairman was a proponent of Brexit. And critics say if a big company like Dyson isn't making that kind of investment in in the UK, given the political uncertainty, what happens when other trade deals fall apart and we're more isolated? There, there are all kinds of unanswered questions, and this was a very uncomfortable situation that Dyson found itself in and uh, got a lot of pushback from lawmakers there in Britain. Not a good sign. No, exactly. You do wonder, uh, well, I mean, they, they've given various reasons for why they've done this, but um, even the people in Singapore were surprised because it's got one of the most expensive, I, th- I think actually the most expensive uh, uh, labor in, on the planet uh, and uh, didn't seem exactly like the right place to go and start building batteries. Uh, as you said, the people in the UK, well, there was a, a lot of pushback from people saying, you know, how can somebody who, who espoused leasing, um, leaving Europe uh, then not bring you know, battery manufacturing into the country. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been quite embarrassing on that front, I think, for, for Dyson, although, uh, we'll, we'll wait to see how they fare once they start, uh, getting the, the manufacturing going over in Singapore. On the other hand, in that case, you can make a pretty strong argument that Dyson really shouldn't be trying to scale up battery manufacturing in Europe. We've seen the same thing play out in solar, which I don't see why this is, such a different beast where there were lots of companies who built out significant manufacturing capacity, mostly in Europe, a lot of it in Germany, and all of that basically ultimately lost out to lower cost manufacturing in Asia, much of which moved to Southeast Asia and in fact even to Singapore. There's still some pretty big solar manufacturing facilities in Singapore. So, you know, look, if Dyson announced it was uh, building a gigantic battery especially if it you know they didn't have some some crazy new ip or robotic based manufacturing operation or something like that if they announced they were building a big factory in the uk i think most of us in the industry would look at that and say ah you know likely that that's going to lose out um ultimately and so maybe they're just getting ahead of that yep fair point so um yeah although it's interesting if you look at the uh the investments going into battery uh, manufacturing facilities in Europe um Shell, a lot of them are actually from asian companies so we've got uh, people like uh, CATL LG Chem SK Innovation Samsung SDI uh Lyshen and others 
all putting money into Europe because they want to be close to the European car manufacturers like Volkswagen. So um, in a sense, you could argue that maybe uh, Dyson should have stayed put Maybe not in, uh, maybe not in the UK, but possibly Germany, because <laughs> uh, that's where all the Asian manufacturers are going at the moment. Yeah. I, I mean, I tend to think that like apples to apples, if there's no difference, manufacturing for lithium ion batteries is going to shift toward lower cost locations. That's, you know, it's an interesting question for the Korean companies as well for the stationary storage market, right? The big players besides Tesla manufacturing in the US are LG Chem and Samsung manufacturing in, in Korea, which is not a low cost location either. So they could face some of the same questions. Uh, you know, the, the one big difference between the battery world and the solar world is the one that Jason mentioned, which is the tie into auto OEMs, um, who are located all over the place, but many of them still in Europe and some of them still in the United States. To the extent that there is a benefit of co-location there um, for design and engineering, as well as for production, you know, maybe there's some reason to stick your battery manufacturing closer to to the auto manufacturing. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I wouldn't personally place a big bet on a commoditized lithium ion battery manufacturing facility in a high cost labor and utilities and supply chain location. So, so Shale, I'll just uh, kind of, I think the one thing you, you're, the, the bit that's missing in that analysis is that the um, the reason many of these Asian battery companies are moving into Europe is is not just to be close to the auto manufacturers, because of course there are auto manufacturers around the world. The reason is that they're going in after the uh, growth in EV markets, and uh, you know we recently published something on on GTM on the website about the uh, places where the internal combustion engines are being phased out. Um, and right now, you have China, obviously, is, is a very big market for EVs. But if you look over the next few years, pretty much everywhere else is going to be in Europe. So if you want to kind of supply batteries to growing EV markets, then it makes a lot of sense right now to build your facilities in Europe because that's where the demand for EVs is going to be over the next decade or so. And I think that's what's kind of causing a lot of these Asian manufacturers who've got a lot of money and they're very smart to locate their facilities in Europe. Well, again, I would distinguish between demand for EVs and demand for EV batteries in that I'm, I don't personally believe that um, there's sufficient benefit in placing battery manufacturing close to ultimate end user demand to overcome the cost advantage that you get and supply chain advantage that you get um, if you build where everybody else is building in lower cost locations. On the other hand, in the case of EV batteries, if you're selling to an auto OEM and they have their manufacturing facility um, close to demand, then that may be worth it. So as an example, say the US auto manufacturers decided not to do EVs at all, but there was still EV demand in the United States. In that case, um, I would think you'd want to place your 
battery manufacturing facility close to wherever those automakers are building their cars, not necessarily close to wherever people are buying electric vehicles. Oh, absolutely correct. And and of course, um, I think the, the, the key point here is that the OEM servicing the European market are mostly based in Europe. So there's not a lot of... Uh, not a lot of vehicles get imported to Europe from outside. So it's a, it's kind of both, a bit of both, but it's definitely what you're saying is true. Well, this these locational logistics apply very well to our final topic, which is offshore wind. And when it comes to offshore wind, you need a lot of the equipment manufacturing to happen close to where you're developing projects. You need port infrastructure. You've got to have all sorts of rigs that can support the installation of uh, deep offshore projects. It is a much different beast. And Europe has perfected this dance with infrastructure and project development and offshore wind. Uh, And so interestingly, in the last year, we've seen a handful of subsidy-free offshore wind projects, I'm using air quotes here with my fingers, subsidy-free, that were signed in Germany and the Netherlands. Um, And a few other tenders recently are are pushing projects even deeper offshore. So a couple very interesting trends happening with offshore wind in Europe. Um, Jason, let's turn first to the subsidy-free wind picture. Now, these are projects that are so low that they're not getting any direct government subsidies. But of course, European countries tend to support transmission infrastructure, which is not done here in the United States. So that's a, that's a huge uh, ancillary subsidy that helps the project. Talk a little bit about the cost picture in Europe and why some of these subsidy-free tenders are emerging. Yeah, so there's been a lot of uh, interest in in, in these uh, subsidy-free uh, offshore wind projects, and and I guess for for good reason. I mean, it's great news for the offshore wind industry to have got to the 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 point so quickly in it, in its terms of its emerging maturity that you can actually contemplate building these things. But I think it's worth saying that they come with a number of caveats. So uh, the first one is, as you pointed out, that you know these uh, these plants are being uh, being planned, and I, I, I should say planned rather than being built because they're still in, in the planning phase right now. Um, but they are being planned with with infrastructure that is being built by third parties. So the, the developer is not having to cover the cost of the transmission lines and, and so on, the interconnectors and all that sort of stuff. So, so you know, it makes the, it lowers the risk, the investment risk, quite considerably to do this, um, and also uh, depends on uh, the location. But in some of them, you know, they don't even have the obligation to, to, to complete the construction. So you can put in a tender for, for, you know, with, with zero subsidy, but, uh, and, and in the expectation in a few years time, you're going to be able to build that plant. But then if you get to that point in time to, you know, get towards financial close and the numbers don't look so great, well, you don't actually have to go ahead and complete it. So there are very specific circumstances and, and, uh, what uh, does appear to be the case is that, that we can't really talk about this becoming the norm because without those circumstances applying, the, the finances, the, you know, the financial side just doesn't add up. Uh, and we are going to see, you know, different markets having different subsidy levels for some time, I think, until, uh, uh, you know, until the, the technology has matured quite a lot more. Um, and uh, we'll see some of these plants then coming on, online on a merchant basis. But for now, it's more of an isolated uh, proposition and, and under very specific market conditions. We talk about more maturity in offshore wind, but even beyond these subsidy-free projects, 
new offshore wind projects are coming in cheaper than, say, the cost of electricity for the planned Hinkley Point C nuclear project in Britain. Uh, so we're at a point now where offshore wind projects are beating natural gas and new nuclear in Europe. Yeah, uh, this this is something that, um, you know, this attracted quite a lot of attention. Uh, you know, I ended up writing a, an article about it for the site myself. Um, this idea that offshore wind is now cheaper than nuclear, it's a great headline grabber. Um, of course, it, it's not strictly apples for apples, the comparison. Um, you know, offshore wind is still an intermittent uh, generation source. The idea with Hinkley Point C is to provide base load. You could argue that uh, it's worth, you know, having a premium for that. Um, the big problem really between the two is that whilst offshore wind is popular and is getting, uh, you know, money, it's getting investors uh, still, you know, happy to pump money into it. And it's pretty quick to, to get off the ground. Nuclear increasingly in Europe is having real problems. And they're not the kind of problems that you've got in the US where, um, you know, it's kind of the electricity is being priced out of the market. It's more to do with the cost and risk attached to new build projects. And Hinkley Point C is a classic case where actually it has pretty good government support, but it's very difficult. It's finally, it's proving very difficult to find anyone who's actually going to go ahead and build it, even with assurances from the government that it will be paid a decent amount once it's completed. So there's a real problem with the outlook for, uh, for nuclear. And, uh, you know, there's a bit of a question mark as to when we'll next see new nuclear being built in Western Europe right now. So, Shale, when you next take your vacation and you're in your, your little Fiat driving around Europe, taking in the scenery and you're, you know, you've got your map and you're asking for directions, which of these stories are you going to break out to show that you understand the state of Europe? <laughs> uh that's an interesting question. I feel like Brexit is probably the topic that everybody talks about incessantly, depending on where you are in Europe, but at least in the UK, uh, in the way that we talk about Trump incessantly. So I'll probably bring that up to, to feel like a local. Yeah, but you can't bring up energy markets because that'll bore anybody who's not a wonk. Right. Like that's universal. Jason Dane is a contributing writer with Green Tech Media. He's based in Barcelona, Spain. Jason, thanks so much. This was uh, a really helpful guide. Thanks for being our, our tour guide. And thanks to you guys. It's been great to be on the show and I uh, hope everybody's enjoyed listening to it. Well, that marks the end of our uh, European adventure. If you want to follow Jason's writing on all these topics and more, we'll have some links there in the show notes. Just go to greentechmedia.com. Uh, Jason also wrote a very detailed, very long report on materials supply constraints caused by the battery boom. And if you're interested in how batteries and EVs are going to impact critical materials, check out Jason's piece at gtmsquared.com. And you, dear listeners, are going to get $50 off your Squared membership if you sign up before the end of the year and use the promo code PODCAST. Just go to gtmsquared.com. And next week, we're going to be in San Francisco for GTM Storage Summit with all the biggest players in the storage industry. Get 20% off using the promo code PODCAST when you sign up at greentechmedia.com slash events. Hope to see many of you next week. We're going to have a live episode from that event for all our listeners who can't be there. Until next time, I'm Stephen Lacey with Shale Khan. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media. Green Tech Media.